Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Welcome to the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section Law in the Family podcast. Today is our guest, Mike Chilcott. Uh, Mike is an attorney in State College with Leach Tishman. Michael, welcome. Also as well, sorry, Aaron. I have my co-host here, Aaron Weems, as always. And uh, Mike, if you wouldn't mind, just tell us about yourself and tell us about your practice. Yeah, so uh, I've been in practice now about eight years. Really kind of fell into family law after law school. It was kind of what I did when I volunteered in law school. I I saw a lot of people in, in need. Uh, with family law. And right after law school, I, I did what I call door law, which was basically anything that walked in the door. Uh, but I did find a need for a lot of people that, you know, pe- most people come in, they need a divorce or they have custody or they need support or something. So I ended up doing a lot of that stuff and then, uh, you know, really wanted to focus my practice on that. So now it's, it's pretty much all I do is family law exclusively. Like you said, I work here at State College with Leach Tishman, which is a uh, Pittsburgh based law firm. I'm here with uh, Jen Beerley and myself. Uh, and that's pretty much what we do is just family law. Well, good stuff. So we have you here today to talk about the 2022 revisions to the Pennsylvania Support Code. You know, if you wouldn't mind, just give us, could you give us just some background about revisions of the Support Code in general? I mean, why, why now or how, how this one come out? So federal law states that the support guidelines have to be revisited every so often. I believe it's every four years at least they have to be revisited. And I think it was three years since we had the last revisit in updating the guideline amounts. But I'm not exactly sure what the Rules Committee decided or or why they decided to make all these changes at once or if it was a conscious decision. But there are changes to the guidelines in addition to changes in the actual other rules that aren't necessarily uh, the guideline amounts that we're going to talk about today. Got it. And so, in other words, my understanding is that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, who oversees these rules, Pennsylvania hires an an expert to really make a determination of how much does it cost to raise a kid, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, and in the last four years, I'll ask you, Mike, to, to raise a kid in the state of Pennsylvania. That'd go up or down? Uh, I would say up, <laughs> probably substantially up. Personal experience very well could be it. Yeah. But uh, besides personal experience, the expert that Pennsylvania Supreme Court hired, they also determined that the cost to raise kids has gone up. And since Pennsylvania bases the child support guidelines on how much it costs to raise a kid, if the costs go up, I guess in turn, the guidelines in part need to go up, too. But that's not the only thing they did. You know, Mike, if you wouldn't mind, just go in and tell me what some of the changes are. Yeah, so the first change is with respect to the guidelines. Whenever the guidelines were published in the past, there would be a 30% presumption of custodial time, meaning that whenever the rules were changed, they would assume that one parent had 70% custody and the payor parent would have 30% custody. And that would be applied across the board, this 30% presumption. And when that, with this most recent update that went into effect January 1st, 2022, I'm not sure if we said that yet, but with the most recent update, they actually took that out, which according to the 2021 comment in the rules, 
amounted to approximately a 5% increase across the board for support guidelines. Now, it's a bit different when it's significantly lower income or significantly higher income, above $30,000 of net income a month. But in the middle there, in between the two extremes, it's it's gone up. And it can be, you know, because of that 30% presumption being eliminated. And it's also just because of the cost of living, the cost of caring for a child has gone up. So that's one of the changes. Let's just talk about that here just briefly, because it's a fairly complex point. So right. before January 2020, when support was calculated, even if a parent had zero overnights, or wasn't spending any expenses directly on the children. It was such that the table for child support presumed that that parent was having at least 30% of the children's time and thus was spending directly on the children as opposed to the expenses being paid by the person receiving child support, right? right. So now the table is adjusted and built in a way that the presumption is not that the person paying child support starts with the assumption that they have 30% of the time. They are starting with the presumption that they are paying zero direct expenses on behalf of the children and that 100% of the expenses for the children are being paid by the person receiving child support. That's correct. That's the new presumption, which is interesting because with the the shared custody adjustment to support, the 30% still remains the subterhand in that equation as to whether or not you're going to get a, a downward adjustment to support. So even though they eliminated the presumption, they didn't change the, the calculation of the shared custody adjustment. So walk us through the actual impact of, in a support conference of dealing with this new presumption. So I haven't had any specific dealings yet with any adjustments or deviations because of this, but I'd imagine that you could get some counties that, that might apply an automatic adjustment if there's any custody time. Right. An automatic five percent or, or whatever the county domestic relations sections decide to do. I could see that coming out of this. Right. Because I think the rules makers were smart in doing this because, you know, you want to make sure that the child's cared for. So we want the negative cases to be that the child's cared for, not not the negative cases to be that the payor is retaining more money. So I think they were smart to do that. But then it kind of leaves people who have that 30 percent custody because, remember, you have to be up. To, you have to be 40% or above to get the deviation. So you could be paying, you know, 39.9% of uh, expenses for the kid while the kid's in your custody, but you're not getting any any adjustment, any deviation in that. So I could see some domestic relations section maybe starting to apply this, if not automatic, uh, a wink-wink automatic adjustment. And I think that's what remains challenging at this point where, you know, I just heard what you said is that you could see domestic relations offices doing this. But again, from from our perspective as practitioners, what's challenging is it's not built into the law. So it's not automatically guaranteed. Different counties can be doing different things with respect to that presumption. And yeah, I like I agree with you. Absolutely. Does it benefit the families and the children where those payors, the people paying child support before this were, were spending no direct expenses on the children. And does that help out those families? The changes, no doubt. Does it make it more complicated and more challenging for those parents that do already spend direct, have direct expenditures for the children? And does the new guidelines presumption that they spend zero 
does it make it more challenging for them? It does. And th- that's, again, it's, it's our challenge when we're representing clients. When, it presents when we go an in additional, oh, sorry, I, I think it presents, presents an additional opportunity to be advocates for our clients again. You know, in, in the area of uncertainty, if we're representing somebody at a support conference, uh, oftentimes it comes down to the better advocate, right? And, and, and arguing for these types of adjustments, deviations, you know, so, so being aware of that. I think is, is the number one key here. And, and, you know, certainly listen to this podcast, which show that you're an attorney who wants to be aware of this stuff. So step one, I think, accomplished. All right. If we could just kind of dive a little bit deeper into this idea of the presumption, but also the, the concept of these direct payments for expenses. You know, one of the things that we always ran into is are, are sort of the other things, the extracurriculars, some of those activity expenses in which inevitably, depending upon your local practice, some Domestic relations offices might consider them. Some might want them to be specific expenses for them to be included in the order. And I noticed that one of the changes talks about how these expenses shall be apportioned between the parties. Yeah. And do you think that's going to be, you know, sort of in, you know, hand in glove with the idea that we're not going to give, we're not going to automatically give people credit for having 30% of the expenses and things like that? The other side of that coin is also we're going to now apportion these expenses so that no one is left holding the bag or, or left with any ambiguity as to who or what they're supposed to contribute to when it comes to an, to an activity or you know, even school supplies, whatever you might be talking about here. So do you think that's also, you know, to your point about increasing the advocacy of really having to be on point in knowing what expenses really are pertinent to the party and knowing what you need to, to bring up at that support conference? Yeah, so I think the preparation for a support conference is going to get uh, more in-depth now. It's not just going to be showing up with your client and their financials anymore. You're going to have to know their background before you can go to a support case uh, and be able to argue this stuff, right, and be able to argue. The, the change that Aaron's speaking about is the discretion in educational, extracurricular, or developmental activities. So the the new rule actually says that the conference officer shall apportion these expenses if it's reasonable under the party's circumstances and related to educational, extracurricular, or developmental activities. Now, there's a lot of discretion there, especially when you get into the developmental activities, right? What's a developmental activity uh, of a child? Well, I could argue that anything's a developmental activity for a child. So as long as it's reasonable under the party's circumstances, then that conference officer is going to have to allow it. Now, where the conference officer has some leeway and ultimately judges have some leeway is, you know, determining if it's reasonable, right? Now, of course, the the extreme example you have, if a kid wants to buy a pony and be a shower of that pony and it's going to cost them $10,000 a year, well, you have the higher incomes that that might be reasonable. But, you know, if your parents only make $3,000 net a month, well, <laughs> of course, that's not going to be reasonable under the party circumstances. And you got everything in between, too, right? So there's going to be a lot of leeway there, I think, in, in making the determination of whether it's reasonable. But if they do make that determination, then they have to apportion it. It's a shall. So I think that's going to be a good uh, or a big change, at least. I don't know whether it's good or not. It's going to be a lot more arguments and support conferences, I would bet. But what, what do you guys think? Is this actually changing much going forward? Do you guys think this rule actually changes much from what was actually occurring anyways? I think it depends on where you practice. I think it might level out some of the idiosyncrasies among different counties, because now you can at least have the, the rule to stand by that, it sh- that these expenses shall be apportioned. 
I also think that it's, it's kind of taking aim at that segment of the population that do the classic, I'll consent to the activity as long as I don't have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that that this is a way to maybe eliminate some of the manipulation that happened as far as legal custody issues would be concerned for some of these things. So, I mean, to that extent, I, I actually appreciate it. I think it will, I think it may afford us the ability to uh, offer some predictability about what might be included. We might not be able to say how much and for, you know, and, and things like that, but I think we can at least be able to tell our clients you need to ex- you need to anticipate that this expense is going to be considered. But at the same time, I mean, that also what is just often so challenging about family law is is the discretion of the individual that you're before. You know, the the new updates regarding expenses. Yeah, there's there's additional language in there um, regarding expenses, but it's still discretionary at the end of the day. And while there is a stronger language that that discretion still exists. So. If in a particular county someone said, look, you know, we never considered expenses before and this new law update does not include language that says every single expense shall be apportioned. That language isn't in there. There, I certainly would agree it's stronger for expenses and there's even a, you know, that again, the mechanism for reimbursement of expenses. But yeah, I think depending on which way conference officers, domestic relations section chairs, hearing officers, if they want to change to in, in light of this new law, they have the authority to do so. If they want to stick with the way they've been doing it before, I also think they can do that. It doesn't necessarily, again, due to the discretion, in my opinion, create a much clearer path regarding a division of of additional expenses outside of what the basics are. Yeah, and I think, you know, that leads to maybe a practice tip here. Um, In in the county I practice in, Center County, uh, county I practice in primarily Center County, we have a pretty good relationship with the head of the domestic relations section here. The fact, you know, anytime we have a question, we email, call them, whatever. But I actually reached out to them to set up a, a lunch and learn for our local family law practice group so that anybody who practices family law in the county can go there, ask him questions, and he'll, you know, I, I'm going to fire at him a bunch of questions about the stuff we're going over now, trying to get some stability or some knowing of what they're actually going to do with these new laws. So practice tip, have a good relationship with your domestic relations section head. Great tip there. I know we're here doing this at the statewide level with the Pennsylvania Bar Association, but you're absolutely correct. It is absolutely critical to, you know, have that knowledge at the local level with respect to what's going on with the local domestic relations office in that county. Again, we we could go on and deep on, you know, <laughs> expenses and other things. Um, Mike, anything else that you think we need to talk about here with regard to updates? Yeah, so... Uh, another change in the rules was that if a conference officer or judge establishes an earning capacity for a party, there is a now a forced imputation of child care expenses on that consideration of, of earning capacity. So the conference officer now must consider the reasonable child care responsibilities and expenses of the party. So, again, I think this goes to preparation for the conference that, you know, knowing all the background of your client so that you can you can make these arguments because before what would happen is you know in, at least where I practice if there was a not to be stereotypical but a, a stay at home mom that was watching a child oftentimes depending on the age of the child that mother would be assessed an earning capacity of, of full time minimum wage at the level you know the, the local level local taxes whatever they assess and there would be no consideration for child care so they would just Assume that they're working full-time minimum wage and somebody else is taking care of their kid that you don't have to pay. Now, 
what happens is if you do assess that earning capacity, you have to consider the reasonable child care responsibilities and expenses of the party, which oftentimes, you know, with the cost of child care nowadays, could completely wipe out that full-time minimum wage or probably does completely wipe out that full-time minimum wage uh, earning capacity. And I think also it's not necessarily, you know, in your example, you said child, it could be children, right? I mean, you know, again, more personal experience here, getting that, you know, looking at daycare fees, I mean, getting that second child, quote unquote, discount. I mean, <laughs> was it 10 bucks a month or something Yeah, off off 1200 um, right. per month for that second child? I mean, say you're, you know, $1,100, $1,200 a month, three kids in daycare, you know, maybe you got a set of twins there. So, you know, somewhere, somewhere in there. And now you're, you're looking at a cost of an excess of oh, close to $40,000 a year for daycare. Right. And I think you also have to take into consideration that that, what you just described was sort of the typical, we have little kids, but now this really also includes what happens when you have older kids. And if, is there, you know, school gets out at 315. If you're minimum wage full time, you're probably don't have the luxury of cutting out it. You know, in your, in this hypothetical, theoretical full time job you have, it's not going to be ending at three o'clock. So now we're really talking about that school age or full time school isn't that arbiter of whether or not child care applies anymore. I'd imagine that, you know, with that example and with the younger kids, I'd imagine that our domestic relations section will, will take a poll of kind of what these daycares charge and try to assess what the actual level of child care costs would be in that particular county. And I know every county is different in terms of what gets charged for child care. But I could see, you know, every domestic relations section coming up with a number and just applying that across the board. So if if you have a child that's zero to five, you know, this is the child care cost per week. If you have a child from, you know, school age to, you know, maybe 10, I don't whatever the reasonable amount is to to not have child care anymore, then this is the amount for after school preschool care type of thing. Uh, I could see that happening very easily. Again, it's one of the things I want to ask of our local representative. Well, and I think we talked about it in preparation for today. I mean, just a tip is, I mean, the Pennsylvania Child Care Network. I know at least here in the center part of the state, there are some decent resources there that create a very affordable option for individuals to obtain daycare at, and again, at at good locations uh, that otherwise accept other full paying, you know, kids and families in there. So if you're arguing for the earning capacity and you're concerned that the other side is going to argue, then, well, here's a hypothetical daycare expense at, you know, $1,200 a month, your response would be, well, okay, well, if your client's going to arguably go back to work, this is the level that you're saying, there's a good chance they might apply, uh, excuse me, qualify for the Pennsylvania Child Care Network, at which time, you know, it's, it's a substantial reduction. Again, for good daycare, because there are a lot of, at least in our area, good participating providers. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, we have to have our clients prepared before we go in and during uh, the conference as well to know that, hey, maybe we should look into this first and see exactly what we're dealing with. All right, Mike, what else? Any, anything else uh, updates on the new round? Yes, yeah, so another kind of smaller update that I noticed with some of the other attorneys I've talked to don't really think it's a big deal, but... I thought we'd mention it. I think it's a big deal. It was the allocation of expenses and, and how you have to actually submit the reimbursement for that. So it used to be that if you had any unreimbursed medicals or even extracurriculars, private school, summer camp costs, you would have to submit them, quote, within a reasonable period of time, but no later than I, I think it was March 31st of the next year. Now, however, the the current 
rule, the current rule states that it has to be submitted, quote, promptly upon receipt. So I think there's a difference between promptly upon receipt and within a reasonable period of time. Uh, to me, promptly is promptly. Like, as soon as you get them, you got to turn them over. Uh, whereas before, it was within a reasonable period of time. So whatever is considered reasonable, a week, two weeks, depending on your circumstances, a month, I don't know. But it, it still retains the, the qualification that in no later after March 31st of the next year. So to me, I it's, it's probably a, a change uh, without a real distinction. I don't know that for sure, but definitely the wording changed, and it seems to be changed to um, have the person trying to get the reimbursement have to submit it earlier than than before. And, and you know, I guess that makes sense in a way, since you're talking about changes of having some costs that will that will be allocated. You know, they shall be allocated. This probably goes this probably goes hand in hand with that. That now you're going to expect people to give each other you know, contemporaneous notice of these expenses so that no one's looking for that, you know, several thousand dollar lump sum payment on, you know, in January the following year that they actually know what's going on with it. But the the point I was going to make is I think we're still talking about the court continuing to have some discretion about allocating those costs, even if they're untimely. And again, we've, we've talked a little bit about discretion already. And I think we know that, that, you know, the domestic relations office and the court they're going to take into consideration the circumstances surrounding when and how these expenses were incurred and when and how they were disclosed to the other party. You know, March 31st is not necessarily a hard deadline, but, you know, you certainly got to err on the side of the right side of it because there are no guarantees of being able to get reimbursed if you're on the wrong side of it. But I think it's important to understand there's still that discretion. And to your point, you know, they want it contemporaneously, but they still give you to, to, to March 31st. What's the right answer? You right. know, I think, I think, you know, practice point is, you know, err on the side of earlier than later. Yeah. So I would, you know, depending on the case, most of the time I would, I would tell clients previous to this rule, get them submitted right away because it's, it's much easier for somebody to pay $1,000 bills than it is one $1,000 bill, right? I, I, I've always felt that was the case. Higher income cases, it might be different, but for the most part, it's the, Recommendation would always get them in sooner anyways. So I think it still kind of follows my normal practice will be to recommend to them to getting them in as soon as possible. But now that the option of, of maybe strategizing getting them in later, I think is, is, is gone away for risk of, of potentially not having any of them uh, allocated or reimbursed. Okay. Any, anything else? Any, any other? changes here to the guidelines so if we could go back i think to the guideline amounts uh one thing that uh, i neglected to mention earlier uh, we talked about how monthly net incomes of thirty thousand dollars were affected thirty thousand dollars and plus were affected but we didn't really get into how much that's affected so previously what i call the hand or hand amounts you know the percentages above thirty thousand dollars previously they were between eight and a half percent and seventeen point one percent depending on how many child children you had so what that means is um, that percentage, whatever your net income was above that percent, that was the amount that was going to be allocated uh, as your basic child support amount. Now, however, it's down to 4% and 6.3%, uh, depending on how many kids you have. So it goes down a little under 11% for six kids, and it went down 4.5% for one child, and, and you know it kind of varies in between there for two to five. 
But I think that's a, a really big change considering we're dealing with such large numbers. You know, the takeoff between four and a half and 11 percent is a large amount. Right. And um, I've seen this play out in some of my higher income cases already where um, the support amount's gone way down compared with previous years. And is, is that sort of um, cases in which you didn't dive into a hand or hand analysis and it was just purely based on the extrapolation? Right. Yes. In your opinion, do you think that having thinned out the extrapolation a little bit will lead to more cases uh, or to fewer Hanrahan analysis than before? Yeah, I mean, it's just my opinion, but probably because, I mean, there's just the less money, the more likely you are to argue that it's reasonable, I think, when you get into these higher incomes. Uh, I mean, that's that's the point of Hanrahan, right, is how, many, how much money do these kids really need? So... Uh, I think the less that you go for, that goes from the payor to the payee, uh, the less likely you are to get into that uh, hand-to-hand analysis. And I guess to the other to the other point is just simply that you know four percent. It may not be financially worth it to the parties to to do the deep dive in the hand-to-hand. You know, you do have to take into consideration the expenses associated with having a whole separate hearing and analysis, right. just for the bottom of the hand-to-hand analysis. And Aaron, I mean, what you just said right there, I mean. Again, we're talking about child support here, right? I mean, we're not we're not talking about spousal or APL. And that analysis with with clients is challenging. I mean, is is running that analysis and saying, "All right, what is another $20,000 of income on the other side look like from from a month-to-month child perspective?" Oh, and by the way, when the tax returns come out and you know, depending on where you are in the year, 6 months from now, you know, again, we're going to have to do this all over again. I think that's the challenge is, you know, you get into some of these cases where people want to serve discovery, financial reports, and it's just the the cost um, and maybe to some litigants and maybe to attorneys. I mean, cost isn't an issue. Um, that's fine. But, you know, these child support cases, the, the return on the investment of discovery on expert reports, that return needs to be there. At times, sometimes I, I know at least for me, I have that realistic discussion with my clients. You know, when, when there's a support order comes out that, you know, might not be favorable, having that cost benefit analysis of, of continuing, you know, down a complex posture. Yeah. And it specifically, I think Anthony uh, applies to, uh, your scenario where it's every year you have to do this, right? Because the income changes, it, it, it varies wildly. It's always high, but it varies wildly because you're basically setting yourself up to have to do it every year, right? So yeah, every year you have to re reapply, reappeal uh, to get the modification. And is it really worth that every year? Because I guess if you were, if it was a regular contract, right, and you you knew you were locked in for ten years, if the kid's eight years old, you knew you were locked in for ten years. It's okay. Well, it's two hundred dollars a month, but it's multiplied over ten years. Whereas now it might be two hundred dollars a month, but it's only for one year. So is it really worth that twenty four hundred dollars? you know, to, to try to chase it down. Yeah. I mean, the reality is it is challenging. And I think, and, and there's a big difference between the, the, the fluctuating W2 employee who gets bonuses and things like that compared to that self-employed individual, high net worth individual who has greater authority to manipulate how they get paid and, and, you know, the manner in which they take their compensation. So, I mean, the, 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 the range of cases is, <clears throat> is broad. And, uh, and what, and I think to both your points, Having to have that discussion about whether it's worth the cost is really important. And it's also important to have that discussion also with your forensic accountant. Um, you know, what, 
know, realistically, what's our, you know, what is our upside on what we can demonstrate? And I think the hard part about all that is it's usually you've got parties that are not necessarily going to, that you may have to drag some of this information out of, you know, that you have to go to the support conference, have the matter deemed complex, just so you could get to a point that you might have been able to get to a lot sooner if people were upfront about their, about their incomes and their expenses and, you know, and produce the information. But, you know, we don't always live in that world. So I do think it is, it's worth the discussion with the client though, and people just have to be prepared to, you know, to figure that, figure out those discrepancies and, and um, the different income levels. You know, and, and I'll give, I mean, you know, I know, I mean, people say what they say about the domestic relations offices. I mean, I, I give at least the ones that I'm before a lot, a lot of credit in that they do try hard to establish support orders mm-hmm. that will last longer than a year. And, you know, that, that order is generally an order that neither person likes that, you know, if there, you know, was a huge bonus year the year before, you know, obviously the person receiving support or, you know, on the other side was that whole entire bonus included, right? And then the other person said, well, no, that was an outlier and, you know, you need to average them. And usually they come up with something in the middle so that the parties don't have to come back year in and year out. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, maybe there's some creative math going on there, you know, when the conference officers take things under advisement. But I, I think they do a decent job of trying to come up with support orders that people can, again, live with. That, that's it at the end of the day, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's just it's a financial transfer from one party to the other through the state of Pennsylvania. And, you know, if they can live with the number, then the number they came up with and not have to go back in every year, that's ideal. Yeah, I mean that that cost of living uh, raise may not justify going back in and, and doing this whole thing all over again. Right, right? no doubt about it. And right. you know, and that and that outcome where you're looking at it, you're like, wow, we somehow somehow the court found us at twenty nine thousand nine hundred and ninety five dollars of combined net income per month. You know, maybe maybe we just maybe we don't need to push this thing over into thirty one like we originally thought. Like maybe we just live at this level. Right, and, and you know, those are all those are all. Great discussions to have with your client and to really note, inform them about, you know, what are the pros and cons of, of pushing these different issues? And re- to your point, Anthony, what can you live with? Like, you know, the entitlement is to the child. We all know that it's always modifiable, but sometimes you got to take a look at it and decide whether or not you want to obtain every single dollar or can you leave a little bit on the table if it's going to save you legal fees on the other side? Um, just as long, you know, we just have to have that conversation with people and let them make an educated decision. Right. Okay, Mike. I think that's pretty much all the big ones. Yeah. You know, I I think the only and I think this is fairly obvious, but I you know I think we're probably all seeing it in our domestic relations offices. I mean, the notion that individuals are going into DRO saying I lost my job and I can't get another one. As we sit here today, I know you know with the economy things can change rapidly, but that excuse effectively, at least in center part of the state, um, that does not fly. Yeah, uh, I'm seeing the same thing in, in my portion of the center part of the state as well, um, that these arguments kind of aren't really flying anymore. And I, I haven't seen anybody, any conference officer, give that higher earning capacity yet that, you know, above the full-time minimum wage, but I think it's coming. I really do. Because, I mean, everywhere you walk around here in, in Center County, downtown uh, State College, Belfont, you see help wanted $14 an hour to start. Right. Yeah, you can't you can't drive from State College to Belfont without at least passing, you know, a dozen or more signs 
advertising compensation at at least yeah. $18 an hour, right? right. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I don't know how much longer those arguments are going to fly. I haven't necessarily seen any of them from parties that were represented. Uh, usually it's from unrepresented parties. Uh, I think the uh, I think the attorneys kind of know better at this point to say, hey, maybe you, you need to work on getting getting a job and getting this income up and, you know, show us what you're doing type of thing. You know, maybe you're not qualified for whatever it is, or, or maybe you can't, you don't have a license, you can't drive there. You know, we need to come up with some reason why you're not working to, to really justify this, or else, you know, I, I can definitely see the higher earning capacity coming. In, in, interesting, just in other parts of the state. I, again, I in the counties that I'm primarily in, yeah, I have, I, I've seen that uh, almost as a reason or support to include that earning capacity that is someone's arguing for and, and say, you know, conference officer, you know, they're, they're real people, right? They drive to work. They pass yeah. all these signs that say how much they're, you know, people are paying out there and, you know, they consider it as being considered um, when they're assigning an earning capacity, you know, probably not if they're trying to assign an earning capacity from a high income scale because they're not passing those signs. But, you know, if you're asserting an earning capacity of $35,000 a year, yeah, the conference officer probably passed a dozen signs offering jobs at at least $35,000 a year. Right. Yeah, right. that's real. And I mean, in the, in, in the domestic relations offices, part of their job is to also enter orders that can be collected. You know, they are not there to, to enter an order and stick someone with an artificially high earning capacity that, that ultimately will be uncollectible. So they are trying to bridge those two issues to make sure the numbers that they're putting in are reflective of someone's of, of a, of a Realistic earning capacity, um, and I and I can't help but think that also even with in, in some of these, you know, they are they may skew on the conservative side a little bit even in this kind of economy, only because we are talking about that they are making people potentially more responsible for other expenses. So they probably want to extend that idea of being able to collect on things even to those. So you know, it's I think I think the one thing we've demonstrated just you know through the lens of this new support these new support guidelines is that there's still a lot of balancing that's going to go on in, in conferences, and it's going to start at the conference level. You can't expect that it's going to happen on exceptions or before a judge. Like, we're going to be – you really need to start it at the conference level to get these conversations going if you want to try to get them addressed and be, be in a position to make effective arguments, you know, at the, ne- at the in the next phases. All right. Well, I think we're about, we're about out of time here. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank here you. on the Law and the Family podcast, we're going to wrap up. And thank you to all us listeners. And we hope to keep giving you good content in the area of family law. Thank you. Thanks. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash family. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.